I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Alex Preston on his latest novel, Winchelsea. Alex Preston is an award-winning author of three novels, This Bleeding City, The Revelations, and In Love and War, as well as a book of non-fiction as Kingfisher's Catch Fire. He writes regularly for The Telegraph, The Economist, and Harper's Bazaar, and he reviews books for The Observer's New Review, The Financial Times, and Spectator. He is the co-founder of the Corfu Literary Festival and the patron of Oxford Literary Festival. And we're going to be talking about Alex's latest novel, which is Winchelsea. Alex, welcome to Little Atoms. Uh, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me on. I'm I'm a fan, so it's uh, it's a real yeah, it's a real thrill to to speak to you. Tell us first of all then how how you describe this novel. So Winchelsea is a revenge story. It's an adventure story, and it's a smuggling story. So smugglers were something that I was fascinated with when I was a when I was a kid. It's something that was very much part of, you know, I had quite a sort of uh, coastal upbringing and smugglers always represented something really kind of exciting and wild and the antithesis of the things that sort of kept me constrained on the land. So I'd always wanted to to see whether I could write a, a novel in that vein, in what is a proud history of British uh, smuggling novels, but a, a history that hasn't had that many added to it in the past hundred years. So Winchelsea is a, it's a real place in, in East Sussex, yep, yep. one of those sort of like right. old seaside towns that's not actually right next to the seaside because things have like silted up or, or whatever. But tell us what it's like now if we were to go there and visit today. Um, it's really interesting because there's a, what's her name? Lucy Duff Gordon, the um, the, the sort of a 19th century adventurer. Um, and in her diaries, she writes of visiting Winchelsea and finding, you know, pigs grazing on the main street and, uh, you know, the whole thing kind of just sort of very disappointing to her. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the people of Winchelsea wouldn't thank me to say that that idea persists. But I think what Winchelsea is now is still very much a shadow of a town that was in medieval times one of the most important not only in britain but in europe it was a, it was a huge and thriving port it was 
the center of the wine import export trade for England. It was a, you know, a town of uh, several churches, many taverns, hospitals, you know, it was really an important place and a, a mixture of, as you say, kind of geographical changes. It used to be it used to be in a totally different place altogether. Old Winchelsea was a, on a kind of shingle spit in the middle of Rye Bay, as it is now. And, and in, I think, 1287 was totally destroyed in a, a big storm and the waves went over the breakwaters and destroyed the town. So so the Winchelsea we have now isn't really even the real Winchelsea. But it was also, because it was so wealthy and because it was so successful and there was so much money there, it was just a really obvious target for French raids, for pirates, for all sorts of things. It's a beautiful town, absolutely beautiful town, a hilltop town done in this, this weird sort of grid that reminds you of kind of New York streets. And it has got this wonderful church that is uh, is half ruined. It's obviously meant to be the size of a cathedral, but there's only half of it left standing because the French knocked it down. There used to be the most enormous bell tower in the churchyard. That, again, was knocked down. It's a wonderful, atmospheric, evocative place. And one of the things that really struck me about it was that it has this network of cellars and tunnels running underneath it. So they were originally built for, you know, as I said, it was a, it was center of the wine trade and they were just there for, you know, sellers to keep the wine in and, and then to move between the sellers. But very soon it was, it was used as a place for smugglers to stow their goods and then to ferry them away to their end destinations. The book is, is set in the in the 18th century and it's, it's structured very much like a, a sort of 18th century novel in that it's, it's not, you know, a, a straightforward story. It's made up, purportedly made up of the tellings, the recollections of a person by various different characters as, as we go through the book, various different sections. And I wanted to talk something about why you chose to use that particular structure. Again, it does feel like a like an old novel, but it tells us like interesting things about at the very beginning there is a very modern actually sounding sort of description where where the main character Goody is basically saying that this is a book it's written about me but it was written by a man and therefore a man can't really write a woman properly. Yeah so I guess that comes from a, there are a few answers to that question. The first and most kind of obvious one is that the basis for Goody was a historical figure called Hannah Snell who was just a, this amazing woman who was working class Londoner pregnant with her first child with her husband thought she was living a kind of happy life and then her husband disappeared and she found out that he'd gone to join the army and so she had her baby left it with her mother and enlisted as a man in the army with the aim of tracking down her husband and she had the most extraordinary adventures fought in the north in scotland during the jacobite rebellion fought in india was wounded received all sorts of medals um really heroic figure and didn't reveal right until right at the end of her uh, of her life that she had been born a woman and the way, though, that the story of Hannah Snell's life is transferred to a wider public, I mean, she was illiterate and, you know, she told her story to a, a London publisher who thought that it would be, you know, that it would be titillating and, uh, and sensationalist and, and absolutely was. But, but reading what is called the autobiography of Hannah Snell, but which is by this 
this London publisher, you, you just feel the male gaze there the whole time. And there is something really tricky about that because this is a story of power structures at a time where gender was massively important in much more circumscribed lives uh, at this time for women. The range of possibilities open to them would change just dramatically just by changing their dress, you know, and becoming a man in the way that Hannah Snell did, in the way that Goody does in my novel. It did so much, but I didn't want to just, I didn't want to fall into the same trap. I didn't want to feel that this was a book that was just kind of recapitulating that sense of, oh yes, well, it's, I can totally tell this story because I'm, you know, it's, I'm a man and, and, and I'm just going to kind of colonize this albeit fictional experience. And so I wanted to play with that idea of identity. You know, it's an interesting time for thinking about who has the right to tell what stories. And I thought that I wanted to tell Goody's story, but I wanted there to be a friction, a kind of, uh, you know, not an awkwardness, but a sense of at least there being several layers to consider in this. And then, sorry, that was a long answer. And then the second answer, which hopefully will be shorter, is, <laughs> is why did I use those sort of multiple viewpoints? Absolutely, as you say, it's drawing on the 18th century literature that I love and that, I, and you know, I mean, the kind of games played by Stern, um, the sort of stuff that Richardson does, be it in epistolary form. What I like in those is is always what the reader is made to do in the negative spaces, what you have to do imaginatively yourself in order to fill in the blanks. And I did it in, in Love and War, where there are numerous different kind of vehicles for the story. And I guess part of me gets a little bit bored by the same voice all the way through and the same, I want to have more fun than that. And I want to do, I want to push the writing in different directions. Let's talk about some of the some of the characters in the book then. So you, you said who Goody Brown was based on, but let's talk about who the Goody Brown of your book is. So Goody is fifteen, sixteen at the start of the novel and is very headstrong, very eccentric daughter of the uh, of the surgeon of Winchelsea and his Huguenot wife Alma. So parents are unconventional. The father is a smuggler, but he's also the surgeon. Um, he is a Jacobite. He's a Catholic. Um, he has had himself a kind of strange and peripatetic and an and adventurous youth. He settled down with Alma. They initially adopt a son, Francis. Goody is, um, Goody's mother attempts to drown both herself and her baby when Goody is born. And the doctor is riding alongside the river when she leaps in and he saves the baby, but not the mother, and then brings the baby up as, as his own. And when we meet her, she is really kicking against, I think, the vision that her father has of a kind of um, gentlewoman, of somebody who is going to help him in, a, in an attempt to rise in society. Um, she wants to be wild. She wants to, she loves that. So the tunnels beneath Winchelsea, which uh, I've kind of magnified and extended in both my mind and the novel. Somebody told me that they'd read the novel and then went and saw them and were slightly disappointed by the tunnels. But you know, that she loves exploring down there. She loves swimming. She loves the wild woods of the, of, of the Kentish Weald. Um, she loves horseback riding. So she's, she's a tomboy. 
and also loves the smugglers. She's very much enamored of the smuggling life and would like to be part of it. And her father would like her to dress in damask and go to balls. And so she, this is a point of, of friction for her, although one that will not endure because of what happens to her father very early on in the novel. And you mentioned her brother Francis. So yeah, tell us something about where he came from. So Francis was was based on several different characters and was somebody that I was fascinated by. Uh, I mean, the name Francis is from the name of um, Dr. Johnson's servant who became his great friend. And Francis is black. He is from a slave colony in Brazil. And one of the things I found out about in my research was that very often a group of the most sort of um, select and, uh, and if you like, refined slaves from a plantation would be sent to Europe to be servants. And I know for a fact that they would go in and out of Ostend, was one of the main places that where they would be sent, or to Bristol or to London. And so I have Francis jump off the ship that's carrying him and land on the beach just down from Winchelsea. Um, so he was a figure that I guess I, I again, I was very cautious about the extent to which I had a right to tell his tale. And I absolutely make, you know, the narrator of the book aware of the act of colonization that is done there as well. But I I was fascinated by those stories and I, I thought it was a, a really interesting way to again have a slightly different take on what is a, a kind of well-worn historical path. And as the you mentioned in the intro and as the um the sort of blurb as the book says, the family are betrayed by a group of smugglers, the Mayfield gang, that that you know were ostensibly family friends and the and the gang that the father works for. And both Francis and Goody embark on to get their revenge on this gang. But actually it turns out, you know, that part of the book is dealt with relatively quickly and it transpires that the main antagonist of the book is another smuggler. So Arthur Arthur Gray, who is the, the head of the Hawkehurst gang, was he he's like you know, incredible flamboyant character, was he based on on a real figure or, or a number yeah, of Yeah, yeah. I mean he is a he's a historical figure. So Oh he, he is, okay. Yeah, he was the leader of the Hawkehurst gang. So I wanted Goody and her family to be fictional and then as much as possible I wanted everyone else within the novel to be historically factual. Now obviously there's only so much one can know about these people. So yeah, it's still an act of creation. It's still an act of uh, a work of fiction. But I did read a lot about him. And Gray was a really kind of magnetic and weird and charismatic figure. Uh, he was very kind of foppish and yet very, you know, very kind of malevolent, this glowering figure. And it was very interesting that there were essentially two of them who ran the Hawkehurst gang in the 17. 17- 40s and I guess the late 1730s and throughout the 1740s. Kingsmill, who was mm. uh, this just brutal kind of thuggish and, uh, you know, really just absolutely villainous and, and, and monstrous character. And then Gray, who was much more of an aesthete, who was much more interested in what the wealth of, you know, Kingsmill was into it just to like bash some heads together and get drunk. And Gray was in for it for, you know, really advancing himself. And he built, you know, we're hearing a lot with oligarch uh, sanctions of these extraordinary 
houses that were built around, you know, London, Surrey, etc. by the oligarchs. You know, Gray built a house that was every every bit a match to those in Hawkehurst. It was called Gray's Folly. And uh, it was so huge. I think at the time it was the second or third largest private house in, in the country. And it was burnt down in a kind of insurance scam after Gray died or after Gray was executed because nobody could afford to keep it. It was, you know, something like 50 bedrooms or something. It was absolutely extraordinary. So these were, I did a podcast called The Rest is History the other day. And we talked about kind of the difference between the smugglers that we have in our mind and the smugglers of real historical fact. And, you know, the smugglers we have in our kind of cultural history are all like jolly rogues, sort of Robin Hood types dispersing their goods to, you know, waifs and strays in Cornwall, by the way, which, you know, Cornwall was never really the centre of smuggling. The reality was very different. These were organised criminal gangs, incredibly brutal, incredibly violent. It was a reign of terror. uh, And they made unbelievable fortunes from the smuggling. They were ridiculously wealthy. The um, the head of the Sea Salter gang, the Sea Salter company of smugglers in North Kent died in, I think, sort of 1811, 1812, uh, and left a, left a will that would be worth sort of 50 or 60 million in, in today's currency. So they were nothing like we think of them in kind of popular imagination. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Alex Preston, and we're talking about his latest novel, Winchelsea. And Alex, actually, in the second half, we're going to go quite a long way away from 
Winchell see because towards the end of the book, Goody becomes embroiled as her, as you mentioned, her father was Jacobite. Francis is also involved in Jacobitism. And Goody actually becomes involved in the rebellion itself. Remind us what that was. Yeah, I was going to say, it's probably not immediately evident to everyone what the Jacobite Rebellion was, but certainly at the time it was massive. So this is Bonnie Prince Charlie. This is the deposed uh, regime of James and the Stuarts. So you have the old pretender, then you have the young pretender, and 1745 is the young, the rebellion of the young pretender. So this is Bonnie Prince Charlie. Initially was going to make an attempt to overthrow George I, who was on the throne at the time, you know, Hanoverian king. Initially was going to make the attempt from France. A big storm blew up the, the day that they were going to do their crossing and um, wrecked all the ships. And so uh, a much smaller force, in fact, there were only about, I think there were eight of them, uh, landed on uh, on Eriskay in the, in the west of Scotland and then gathered about them the Scottish clans and marched down and, and were headed for London. And it was really, you know, I think it was, it's easy with the vision of hindsight to say, well, it was never really that much of a threat. But actually, I think at the time it really was. And I think particularly had the French king not prevaricated, had there not been this storm, had there been support from elsewhere, I really think they might well have succeeded. The thing that I discovered in the research that, again, I hadn't known anything about was the very close linkages between the smugglers and the Jacobites and the extent to which these were you know, the Jacobites were financing the smugglers. The smugglers were financing the Jacobites. There were Jacobite families across the country, but, you know, very, very wealthy Jacobite families in Kent and Sussex. The Carroll family of uh, West Grinstead, hugely wealthy Catholic family. And they were, you know, they were putting up the cash for smugglers runs and then making a lot of money on the back of it. Whenever the, the, you know, the smugglers wanted to get rid of a body, you could bet on them basically hiding it in one of the lakes on the Carroll's lands. It was it was this very kind of symbiotic relationship. And, and so I wanted to send Goody somewhere else. I wanted to have... I felt like I wanted to kind of widen the lens a little bit. And so it just seemed to make a lot of sense that she would be drawn into the Jacobite rebellion, given how important they were and given the extent to which the Jacobites were absolutely sort of counting on the smugglers to be one of the, the groups that helped them in their attempt to overthrow the ruling regime. Now, I managed to miss that Arthur Gray was a real character, but one of the narrators of the story, um, who is definitely a real character, is uh, the Chevalier de Johnson. Tell us something about who he was. This is one of those ones like I find when I'm writing a book or, you know, when I'm in that incredibly sort of receptive stage when the book is just all coming and it's all feeling like, yeah, it just all flows so nicely and, and stuff just sort of arrives at you. And we'd gone up to Scotland to my wife's, so my late father-in-law, my wife's father's ashes are scattered on a mountain in Scotland. And we'd gone up there and we saw it was very near a friend's house. And she said, oh, I'm going to be at, at home then. And, and would you like to come and, and visit? And and so we said, yeah, absolutely. And it was this extraordinary place. It's it's actually, it's her parents' house. It's the house she grew up in. And it's, uh, it's, called Rothy Mercus, but the house is called Dune. And it had this wonderful island in the middle of a loch. And I swam out to the island with my kids and 
the water was freezing, but there was this ruined castle in the middle of the island. I mean, it was magical. It was like something out of the Famous Five or something. And then um, I went and spoke to to my friend's mother, who said, "Oh yeah, you know the um, the Chevalier de Johnson hid on that island after the Jacobite uprising." And I had no idea who she was talking about, and um, so she pressed the book on me, which were his memoirs. And he's a just a brilliant character, proper sort of heroic, uh, slightly ridiculous, again very foppish, very much sort of caught up in the excitement that must have been there at the time of the rebellion and so yeah it was it just became like a very i was like right this is just absolutely has to be there in the story and then again when i was looking for maybe slightly different perspectives to take on goody i felt like his was one that i i I loved his voice in the in his own memoirs and and it was really good fun to kind of try and and mirror that so, of course, as, I mean, this is no spoilers for the book, historical fact that the Jacobite rebellion basically found us at the um, extremely bloody and brutal Battle of Culloden. The Duke of Cumberland, who is another, obviously a real historical character, who now, and actually for, you know, for quite a long time, has been seen as embarrassing, brutal figure, um, but someone who was obviously like a, you know, a big hero at the time for um, for putting down the putting down the rebellion we see we see goody basically taking part in this as in disguise in this battle and it's just it's absolutely stunning sequence in the book i thought it's um it's a oh thank you yeah i mean battle is so difficult to write about and i it's something that i've always been really interested in is you know from war and peace onwards so well from you know homer onwards how do you convey something that is so outside of the realms of language and how would the experience be what would it be like on from a subjective level to to go through something like that and i i just had no yeah i like i read a lot of memoirs i read a lot of history books i read a huge amount of stuff and and yeah i found it a, a you know a really interesting challenge to try and engage with that and just one other thing before I ask you to read a bit of the book, if you would. What other writers were a particular influence on this novel? Uh, that's interesting. So, I mean, the obvious initial one was Jamie Faulkner's Moonfleet. That was a book that I loved as a kid. It's sort of, it's really interesting. I, I read it to my kids and then have reread it more recently. It's a really complex and, and interesting book. It's sort of a an adventure tale for the first nine tenths and then turns into something very different the ending is is really powerful and unexpected and almost kind of proto-modernist and so I really I loved that book and I loved it I guess for different reasons as I got older but you know also Golden Hill by Francis Spufford was a was a book that left a huge mark on me that I just thought it was historical fiction where there was just this real commitment to not authenticity of language, but to shaping a language that felt authentic and that had the the real kind of patina of the age. And so that was something that I really admired in that book and tried to, to replicate in some small way in Winchelsea. So can I get you to finish off with a reading from it? I'm going to do from the beginning. This is Goody. Um, so we start off and it's a kind of, you know, the sort of literary conceit that was quite common in, in 18th and early 19th century novels. And the reader is invited to look at Winchelsea through a, through a kind of mystical glass. And this glass will slow and, uh, and speed up time. 
And it is through this that we first see Goody. It is the 18th century, a time of getting and spending, of great wealth built on the backs of bloody empires. We see Goody Brown, just a babe, plucked from the waters of the breed by a man she will come to call father, Ezekiel. We see her adoptive mother, Alma, and her brother Francis, another orphan. Goody grows as a tree might grow, in short, surprising bursts, followed by years in which she hardly seems to change at all. By ten, she is already larger than many of the good women of Winchelsea, who watch condescendingly as she goes by on her father's horse, her white blonde hair a plume behind her, her clothing that of a stable lad or smith's boy, her pale eyes set on the sea, or the high ridges of the weald. Her father still dreams of making a lady of her, forces her into damask gowns, corsets and canes. She is happiest like this, though, out in the elements, or deep in the winding dark of the tunnels. Now, let us slow that time machine down further, until we find Goody on a September evening, just shy of her eleventh birthday. She is standing where King's Cliffs meet the marshes, below the ruined walls of Winchelsea. Goody's father, the Cellarman Ezekiel, has tasked her with checking the fastness of the gates to the underreach, to keep safe those goods stored within the tunnels from thieves or excisemen. She performs this duty, rattling the gate, peering in at the murk of the caverns beyond, which she knows intimately, having played in their close darkness since a small girl. She then turns to look out to Rye. There, over the marsh, coming towards her in the long late rays of the sun, she sees her friend, Jim. Jim Lawrence is his name. Fifteen, pimply and mopish, with a voice that creaks like a gate every third word. His father died three years hence in the workhouse, and he is the breadwinner now for his mother and three sisters. He has become a smuggler, as many do when there is little between them and starvation. Goody does not know him very well, but he is always a smile for her, even when he's been out in rough weather, or when there's been a close call with the revenue. Now, though, Jim is running pell-mell through the quaggy marsh, his arms and legs moving furiously. He skirts the ruins of King Henry's fort, turns and looks back, presses on. Goody climbs a little up the cliff to get a better view of him. She sees that three men are chasing Jim, men she recognises. Further back, she makes out another familiar shape, the squat, tub-like figure of her father, attempting to keep up. Goody draws back against the cliff, into the cover of ferns, and watches. Nasty Face is the first of the men to catch Jim. He tackles him as if they were playing football, then takes him by his hair, pulls him to his feet and knocks him down again. Now Gabriel and old Joel catch up with them. Her father is still some way back. They lead Jim to one of the ponds that pock the marsh. Jim tries to make a break for it, wading in knee-deep, and Gabriel goes after him. They stand there, facing one another for a few moments, the tall man with his sweep of black hair, the boy with his face a mess of tears and mud and blood. Finally, Goody's father, winded, arrives at the pool and stands there, panting. Words are spoken, mainly by Gabriel, and as he speaks, Goody sees him bind his fist in a piece of cloth. Old Joel and Nasty Face stand behind him as he hits the boy. After two punches, Jim goes down in the water and comes up spluttering. But then the three men take turns to bring their heels, 
their fists, their elbows, down on his head and his back until he doesn't come up anymore. At the end, it is as if they are dancing a jig on his poor back, trampling him into the water. When they are done, they stand there for a moment, watching over the pool as it stills, breathing heavily. Ezekiel looks on, then reaches into his coat and draws out a notebook, scribbling something within. Goody feels a taint seep from that pool and drift over the marshland, over the river, towards her. Now we rise out from Goody, a tall, square-shouldered child with great swags of hair the colour of sea spume. Her mouth is open, her pale eyes wide. She is fringed by fernbrake and hawthorn, deep in the greenery of the hillside. We rise up, over the town, its regimental streets and squares, its ruined church, its crumbling walls. We rise out until we see Winchelsea, like a dim jewel set at the throat of the sea. Then all is ocean, and the wind is high about us, and we take the device from our eye, and permit Goody, at last, to begin her story. So I've been talking to Alex Preston. We've been talking about his new novel, Winchelsea, which is out in the UK from Canongate. Alex, thank you so much for telling me about it. Thanks so much. It's been really fun. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.